I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah there after Ezra and before Esther, uh, kind of a companion book to Ezra, the book that precedes it. Uh, together, Ezra and Nehemiah telling the story of the Jews that returned from exile in Babylon and then in Persia, going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city of God's people to there be as a living beacon for the glory of God to the nations. Uh, we looked at the, the companion book of Nehemiah, uh, Ezra. We looked at it early last year, almost about a year ago. We finished our, our study of Ezra, not, uh, Ezra, and now we turn to its uh, companion book, Nehemiah, to finish the story. This morning we'll be in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. But before we get to the text, I think it's helpful to remember how we got here, to set Nehemiah in its historical and biblical context. In order to understand how we got here in Nehemiah, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. We have to go all the way to Genesis, where we see God creating in six days all that we see and know in the universe, and on the sixth day, creating man in his own image, in his likeness, to know him, to love him, to worship him, to be in perfect and delightful, joy-filled relationship with God, his creator. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation of woman as well, uh, flesh of man's flesh, bone of his bone, brought together to be there in the garden as a living mirrors to reflect the glory of God in all the world. And it's not long before we get to the third chapter of Genesis and we see the man and the woman rebelling, acting treasonously against the God who lovingly created them, eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, disobeying the only command that God had given, and they are expelled from the garden. These people made in God's image to know, love, worship Him, to reflect His glory in the world, now expelled from a place of perfect peace and happiness and life. It was a good many years and generations later where God's people found themselves living as slaves in a foreign land, the land of Egypt. And there is God's people, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, were, were there living as slaves to the Egyptian Pharaoh. God made a promise that he would deliver his people, that he would bring them out. And so he sends Moses and his brother Aaron to be his spokespeople to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt and to the Hebrews. And God in his power with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, as we read in Exodus, leads his people out of slavery in Egypt to be a people for his own possession, a, a chosen people, a, a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that they might be as living beacons of his glory to the nations. It's a glorious story of God's victory and triumph over those that would seek to enslave his people. It's a story of redemption. In fact, if you want to understand the story of the paradigm of redemption in all of Scripture, read Exodus again. You get a picture there of how God redeems, how he delights in gathering a people together for himself, rescuing them from slavery not only to Egyptian pharaohs, but slavery to sin as well. 
And God, as God rescues the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brings them to a place, to the land of Canaan, where, where they will live as his people. And there, after a time, they have for themselves a king named Saul, who's not a very good king, who God then replaces with David, who's a better king, although he's got his plenty flaws as well. But still, David, a king who sets an example of what it means to be one, a a person after God's own heart. When he sins, he recognizes it. He confesses it to God. He repents of it. David is followed by his son Solomon, who does not necessarily follow in his father's footsteps. He marries women from lots of different neighboring countries and, 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 and allows the worship of false gods to invade the land of Israel. And so after Solomon died, the kingdom was torn in two, north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and the two nations were constantly at war. Israel, the kingdom in the north, never had a good king, and they were eventually led astray by the idolatrous practices of their kings. They were eventually conquered by the neighboring uh, nation of Assyria in 722 BC. The nation of Israel uh, in the north ceased, the kingdom of, of Israel in the north ceased to exist, and its people were taken and dispersed throughout the world. The southern kingdom of Judah continued for another uh, 100, uh, 150 years or so until 586 B.C. when they were conquered by, by uh, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Their problem was the same as the kingdom of Israel in the north. They had fallen into idolatrous worship, worship of gods other than God. They had rebelled against. They had acted treasonously against God who brought them to be a people for his own pleasure, for his possession to reflect his glory in the world. For nearly 70 years, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, lived as strangers in a foreign land. They lived in exile in Babylon. Babylon was later conquered by the the nation of Persia, which uh, then came to rule much of the known world at the time. And in 538 B.C., by the grace of God, the king of Persia at that time, uh, uh, Darius, gave a decree that Uh, the Hebrews could return uh, from Persia back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple uh, of worship to their God there. The temple was completed in 516 B.C. In 458 B.C., Ezra, the priest, returned from exile to Jerusalem to lead the people in restoring their worship there in the temple. God, again, restoring, redeeming a people who were slaves and strangers in a foreign land to be a people for himself to be as living beacons of his glory and his character in the world and the land that he had given to them. And so now we come to Nehemiah. Here now the year is about 445 B.C. And Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer, the one who would bring the, the cup of wine and the food to King Artaxerxes. Now Nehemiah being called by God to go and continue a project in Jerusalem. Now, some of you may be tempted to think that Nehemiah... Because the, the main content of the, the book, the, the story arc of the book, if you will, kind of focuses on rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem and rebuilding the city within itself, may be tempted to think that Nehemiah is just a book about good leadership or a book about building things or a book about strategy. It's not that at all. Nehemiah is a book about God's people resolving themselves to worship God faithfully resolving themselves to be God's people the way that he called them to be. It's not about building walls. It's not about building buildings. It's not about being good leaders, although we do see those things at play in Nehemiah. It's about the people of God being resolved to live rightly with God who called them. 
In Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, as we introduce ourselves to this book this morning, we'll see God providentially using Nehemiah, this man of deep faith and great influence, to lead the effort of repentance among the people of Israel and rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. The main idea that comes to us from chapters 1 and 2 of Nehemiah is this this morning, that God displays His glory among repentant and dependent people. God displays His glory. He displays what is beautiful about Himself among repenting people who are dependent upon Him. And friends, if we are to display God's glory in the world as His church, we must regularly be repenting of sin and humbly depending upon Christ for our our success in all the kingdom work that He has called us to do. So let's turn our attention to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'd invite you as you're comfortably able to stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. There we read, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. You may be seated. God displays his glory among repentant and dependent people. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see first of all on display the need for repentance. The need for turning from sin from among those that God calls by his own name. Early on in these verses, we are introduced to the problem. The problem uh, on display in Nehemiah is that the walls around Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people, the walls are in ruins. They're in shambles. They're in tatters. Very quickly, we see that this problem is the one that will drive through much of the course of Nehemiah. 
very likely the walls that are lying in ruins that Nehemiah learns about from uh, one of his brothers, Hanani. We don't know if Hanani is his uh, biological brother or just from like among his clansmen, but all the same, the news that he receives that the city is in, uh, is in shambles and the people are in shame uh, sets for us the problem that will be addressed over the next several chapters in this book. Very likely the walls have been in the state of disrepair since the city was sacked by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Now, as we saw in the book of Ezra, the temple of God had been rebuilt by the first waves of returning exiles from Persia to Jerusalem, completed in 516 BC. But the walls that protect the city and the walls that protect the temple are still broken down. They're still just in rubble around the city. We also learn, though, early on in this chapter that not all problems are what they seem at first appearance. The problem seems to be that the walls are in ruins. We learn from Nehemiah's reaction to the news that the walls are in ruins, what the real issue is, what caused Jerusalem to end up in shambles as they were. The the problem is that the walls are in ruins, but the cause, the deeper source of uh, of the symptom that is the ruined walls is that the people of Israel have been sinful. Nehemiah's response to the news that Jerusalem is in tatters, is immediately, as we see in verse 4, to stop, to mourn, to fast, and to pray. We'll find that Nehemiah, over the course of this book that bears his name, Nehemiah is a capable, strategic leader. But his first move in response to the problem that the walls are in ruins is not to strategize. It's not to gather a team together. His first response is to pray. And it is his prayer that reveals the real problem that the people face. Not walls that are in ruins, but hearts full of sin. As Nehemiah prays, he addresses God as the God of covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, This is an almost formulaic way of, of referring to God throughout the Old Testament. God himself refers to himself, calls himself, uh, when speaking to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, he says, I am the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. This is the God to whom Nehemiah prays, the God of covenant and steadfast love. But from here, Nehemiah calls out to the God of mercy, not for help to build the wall. Notice that there's, there's almost nothing about God enable us to get this job done in his prayer. No, his prayer is full of confession of sin and repentance. The reason, the cause for the rubble around Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day is the sin and disobedience of the people of Israel. In verses 7 through 9 of Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah invokes... Uh, the covenant blessings and covenant curses from the final chapters of the book of Deuteronomy that God gave to Israel before they entered into the land of Canaan to make it their own. And in essence, the, the covenant blessing was this. If the people would keep God's law, if they would reflect His glory and His character, His holiness in the world in, in appropriate ways that He had given them to live, then they would be blessed with long life in the land that He was sending them to. But... If they disobeyed, if they broke covenant, if they worshiped other gods, God would curse them by being overtaken by their enemies and scattered among the nations as strangers in foreign lands. If they worshiped idols, if they forsook God, then God would cause them to be driven out of the land that he had brought them to, taken into exile by their enemies. Does this sound familiar? 
It's exactly what happened in the life of Israel. As we read after Deuteronomy, we read Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. And what we read in all of those books of history in the Old Testament is, is, is uh, we read about the people of Israel doing exactly what God warned them not to do. And God giving them all of the consequences that he said would come if they were disobedient. That's why the city and the people and Nehemiah are in the situation that they're in at the moment that we come to in Nehemiah chapter 1. The problem is that the walls are broken down, but the cause of that problem, the cause of the, the, of the city lying in ruins and the people being scattered among the nations is that the people are sinful. So Nehemiah responds to God, to not just the problem, but to the cause, and he responds by confessing sin. The city of Jerusalem lies in rubble because the people of Israel had sinned grievously and unrepentantly for generations against God. Time and time again, when God gives opportunity for repentance, the people refuse. They double down on their idolatry until God allows them to be overtaken by their enemies and sent into exile. Nehemiah knows this. He knows not only God's word, the covenant blessings and curses that come from Deuteronomy, but he also knows his people's history. He knows how they acted. He doesn't mince words or pull punches when it comes to calling out the actions of his forefathers that led them to this situation. Nehemiah mourns the sins of those who came before him. And he mourns the sin even of his own heart that constantly threatens to undermine God's covenant with the Israelites. You notice that Nehemiah confesses his own sin in this passage, in his prayer. Nehemiah, mind you, wasn't even alive at the time that the people of Israel or the people of Judah were taken into exile. Nehemiah was probably born in exile, grew up in exile, had always lived in exile, and yet he includes his own sins in confession to God for the reason that the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. In his confession and repentance, Nehemiah recalls to God that Israel, God's people, called by his own name, the people of Israel that God rescued by his great power and his strong hand from slavery in Egypt some 1,000 years before He says, you rescued us once to be your people, God. Now, as we repent of the sinfulness that made us slaves to new masters, redeem us for your glory once again. Nehemiah sees not just the problem before him, but he sees what's beneath it, the cause, the sinfulness of the people. And he knows the disposition, the sinful disposition of his own heart, which threatens to replay those events of Israel's exile all over again if he's not aware of and confessing and repenting of his sin. And so he says, God, we're a sinful people. So hear our prayer. Grant us forgiveness. Help us to repent and bring us back to be your people again. Nehemiah 1 shows us the need for repentance. The truth for the church this morning is this, that if God will be glorified in us, if we will be as living beacons of his glory and his character and his holiness in the world, if God will be glorified in us, we must first be willing to repent from our sins. The redemption narrative that is playing itself over and again in Nehemiah's life of, of slavery to sin and redemption for God's purposes and slaves is, or, or living in exile because of sin and being redeemed for God's purposes again 
is just another picture of the great promise of redemption that is for all people who forsake sin, who turn from sin to trust in God. We're seeing a picture of redemption again on display in Nehemiah. God's constant call to Israel in the Old Testament is is but a microcosm. It's a shadow. It's a signpost of God's call to every human being to return to Him. We go back to the garden with Adam and Eve where they were made in God's image to know, love, and worship Him in perfect and, and, and unrestricted relationship with Him. But they forsook that. They rebelled against God. They acted treasonously against Him. And still God makes opportunity for redemption. God still calls them to repent and come back to Him. Church, the point of Nehemiah is not that the people needed to start a building campaign. The point of Nehemiah is that they needed, God's people needed to repent of sin and have their hearts renewed. Don't miss that. Can I speak truthfully for a moment? I've often heard Christians lamenting on social media and in side conversations. Christians often lamenting the sad state of affairs around us today. Pointing out the sins of a world that that we know never really wanted to know Christ anyway, and calling on non-believers to change their moral compass. But I hear relatively few Christians lamenting their own sins of self-righteousness, lamenting our own sins of greed, lamenting our own sins of lust, our own sins of anger, lamenting our, our own sins of selfishness. I find it strange that local churches in their worship centers on Sunday morning aren't found with many Christians confessing their sins with specificity to God and one another. Repentance is something sorely lacking in the church in America today. And then repenting even in their own hearts of the sins that have prevented them from living as the beacons of God's glory and mercy in the world that He has saved us to be. I hear among Christians and even in my own heart a lot of moaning and groaning about the state of the world, but not a lot of lamenting and repenting of the sins of my own heart and of our own hearts. Christian, do you long for spiritual awakening in our nation? That's not a rhetorical question. If you want to see spiritual awakening in our nation, then start with your own heart. Nehemiah realizes this. If God's going to restore his people, he's going to restore people who are faithful to him, who who confess their sins and repent of them. So he starts with his own heart. Recognize that Christ's death has paid for your sins. Christian, know that Christ's resurrection in glory requires that his people live resurrected lives of regular repenting. Do you want to see genuine revival of souls from death to life by faith in Christ? Do you want to see lost people come to life by faith in Jesus? Again, not a rhetorical question. If so, then begin by asking God to enliven and to soften your heart, which maybe has been long calloused over by sins that you've ignored or soothed over with religious exercises but failed to deal with in faith. The problem... The real problem that not just the people of Israel, the, the, those that from Judah that were living in exile faced, but the problem that all of us face, friends, is not that the walls of our life are broken down. 
The problem that we all face is that our hearts love rebelling against God. But here's the good news, friends. God loves repenting people. God receives repenting people. Whether you turn in repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus, the Son of God who died for sins and was raised again, whether you turn in faith and repentance to Jesus for the first time today, friend, or you're a Christian who has long ignored your need to confess your sins and repent anew, the good news is that God in heaven stands ready to receive with gladness and to renew the hearts of everyone who trusts Him this way. Our real need is repentance, and God loves receiving those who repent of their sins. John the Apostle, friend of Jesus, writes in his first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's not talking to lost people. He's talking to Christians. Christian, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. But if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God delights in receiving those who repent of sin. So friend, this morning, turn from your sin. Don't focus on the sins of others this morning. Focus on the sins of your own heart and pray, God, forgive me of these. Renew my heart. Enliven me again. Give me newfound zeal for proclaiming your name among the nations that I might live as you have made me to be a living beacon of your glory in the world. We see, first of all, in Nehemiah chapter 1, the need for repentance. But then we get to Nehemiah chapter 2. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Nehemiah continues, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, remember, he's the cupbearer to the king, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah." And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. 
Then I went to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then went up in the night by the valley and and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 1 shows us the need for repentance. Nehemiah chapter 2, though, shows us the need for dependence, dependence upon God. We have first in these verses, verse 3 of chapter 2, the presenting issue, which is to rebuild the wall. That's the main problem that is before uh, the people, to rebuild the wall that the, uh, that, so that the temple of God and the people of God and the worship of God in Jerusalem would be protected. But we're introduced very quickly with one complication to this presenting issue, the complication of resources. Nehemiah doesn't have what he needs to get the job done. Convinced of the need to rebuild the wall and protect the city, led by God to meet this need over the course of four months of prayer. He starts praying in the month of Kislev, which is uh, 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 November, October, November of one year, uh, and completing it in the month of Nisan, which is March, April of the next year. After praying for four months, Nehemiah is determined to address the need, but he lacks the resources to do it. Now, as a servant of the king, as cupbearer to the king, he has a post to fill, and he cannot abandon that post. He needs time. One of the resources that Nehemiah needs to get this done is a leave of absence for a period of time. And as a member of a people whose city is in tatters, who live in exile, he also has no building materials and no money to build the wall. Nehemiah knows that God has called him to rebuild the city, but he lacks time and he lacks money to get it done. So how does Nehemiah respond to these needs? He depends on God. He depends on God. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, recall for us the process by which Nehemiah asks the king for what he needs. He's prayed for four months, prayed and fasted for four months. And after doing so, he determines that on this particular night at this particular banquet with the king and the queen there together, he's going to ask King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in all of the world, for what he needs. Having always kept himself put together when he serves the king, he always kept himself well composed. This time he doesn't hide back his emotion and he allows all of the deep depression in his heart over the fact that his city lies in ruins to come flowing out of him. And it is obvious that he is depressed. And the king, seeing that Nehemiah is so distraught, he says, Nehemiah, what's wrong? You've never been this way before me before. What's going on? Nehemiah states plainly that he is depressed because his homeland and his people are in a state of horrible disrepair. How else else should I be, O king? So the king asks Nehemiah what he wants. What are you requesting? Verse 4 is great, the end of verse 4. Nehemiah says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is the second time that Nehemiah has prayed already 
in the book of Nehemiah. He'll, he'll pray in almost every single chapter until the narrative shifts away from him and, and toward the people more broadly. This time we don't get the content of his prayer. He has a long prayer in chapter 1, but here in chapter 2, verse 4, all we get is, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Some scholars have called this an arrow prayer. Like, in a moment of need, Nehemiah shoots an arrow up to heaven. We don't know what his prayer was, but it's a, it's a prayer that is shot to God with just a thought. I like to think it was something like, okay, Lord, here we go. Four months I've been praying. Four months I've been planning. Four months I've been depending upon you for this moment. Now, this is the moment where I have to ask the most powerful man in the world for what I need. Here we go, Lord. So Nehemiah lays out with boldness his whole request to King Artaxerxes. Not only does he need time to go back to Judah and to Jerusalem to lead the work, not only does he need a military and diplomatic uh, 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 entourage to protect him for safe travel, but he also needs the king to pay for it. All of it. Nehemiah, in this moment of negotiation, of request with the king, brings literally nothing to the table except the cup of wine that was in his hand that was part of his service to the king. He brings nothing to this negotiation. He needs everything and has nothing to offer to the king. Now, it's true that if Artaxerxes can, is able to curry favor with those who are living in Judah that it'll help him in his resistance against the Egyptians who had been fighting against Persia during this time. But all the same, Nehemiah has none of that in mind. Nehemiah doesn't even say, hey, king, this will be good for you politically if you help us out. He just says, this is what I need. Nehemiah himself promises nothing to the king, and he is totally dependent for all that he needs to fulfill the task that he knows God has put into his heart. And notice that in God's great providence, the king grants everything that Nehemiah asked. How long do you need? Sure, take letters. Take a diplomatic envoy. Take all the wood you need from my forest to do this. Artaxerxes answers in full all that Nehemiah is requesting. Answers everything that he needed. All the resources that once were a complication are a complication no longer, but notice the reason that Artaxerxes says yes to this request. Verse 8 tells us that it's not because of Artaxerxes' great generosity. It's not because Nehemiah has put together a compelling business plan or because Nehemiah is a great strategic leader. It's because the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah. You think he's missed that in any of this? I don't. I think Nehemiah knows exactly that what he needs more than anything is for God to provide. He is utterly dependent upon God to provide all that he needs for this task. And so, with all that he needs for the task, he sets off to Jerusalem, where he there encounters a second complication. Not a complication of resources, but now a complication of resistance. No sooner does Nehemiah arrive in his homeland or the homeland of his ancestors in the city of Jerusalem than he is met with resistance and opposition from two people and later a third. Sinbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and later on, Geshem an Arab. Now, these leaders of the areas of the nations around Judah uh, come to be representative of the embittered relationship that the people of Israel always had with surrounding nations, especially the Ammonites. You can read about them more in the Old Testament uh, uh, books of Genesis through Deuteronomy if you like. So Nehemiah there, confronted with some resistance from his opponents, 
Not wanting to give any more information to his opponents before it was necessary, he decides to, after three days of recuperating, go out in the middle of the night to survey the city to see what needs to be done. And so he starts at the southwestern end of the city. And he curls around the southern tip of the city until he can't go forward any further because of the destruction of the wall. So he descends into the Kidron Valley on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, surveying the walls from the valley below to see what it is that he needs to fix. And after completing just a partial survey of the walls, he returns to the city by the way that he came. He didn't even have to go all the way around to know we got a big task. And on what is very well the very next day, he gathers everyone in the city who's going to do the work. And he reveals his plan to them. Notice from verse 18 of chapter 2 that Nehemiah's dependence on God in the past has inspired him and inspires the men of Judah to depend on God all the more to rebuild the wall. He says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. The God who provided all our resources brought the king to give, me, to give us everything that they need. And the people say, if God is with us, very good. Let us rise up and build. Now, no sooner do the men say, let us rise up and build, than do our antagonists, who we'll see more of in the chapters that follow, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they appear again to taunt the Jews. They insult them. They accuse them of conspiring against the king. And over the course of Nehemiah, their resistance will only get stronger and more violent. But notice Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah's response in this moment, uh, facing a complication of resistance, his response is to depend on God once again. Nehemiah doesn't trade jabs with his adversaries. He doesn't even defend his right by permission of the king to lead the work and rebuild the wall. He simply depends upon the blessing and hand of God to make them successful. He says to his enemies, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. God is glorified among repentant and dependent people. Church, if God will be glorified in our kingdom work, in our work to extend His glory in the world through proclaiming the gospel, we must be a people dependent upon Him. We must follow the example set by Nehemiah to depend upon God for all that we need. The work to be done by these Old Testament saints here in Jerusalem is to restore, by God's help, the city that is the home that, that is home to the worship of the one true God, so that they might display his glory and his holiness to the nations. And we find between the Old and New Testament, as the Old Covenant gives way to the New Covenant by Christ's death and resurrection, we must realize that the home of God's uh, spirit today is not a temple of stone and marble in a city with walls around it but god's spirit makes its home in the temple of the human heart of those who have trusted christ as lord as lord and savior and that as god's people we are not building a city but looking forward to a city as we saw in hebrews with heavenly foundations nevertheless our task is the same to be as living beacons of the glory of god and of the gospel of jesus christ to our neighbors and to the nations of this world God, in His infinite wisdom, has ordained that human beings, like you and me, who have been saved by His grace, God has ordained that we join Him in His work to expand His kingdom to the hearts of people from every tribe and nation and tongue. 
as new covenant saints, our work is not to build a kingdom within a city, but to build a kingdom that encompasses the world. The work of God's people today is to bring Him glory, to declare and spread His His beauty and majesty in all the world by making faithful disciples of Jesus, the Christ. And just like Nehemiah and the Jews that rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, we cannot do this. We cannot make disciples of all nations apart from total dependence upon God. Let me say this directly. The single greatest determining factor in the lasting mission success of the church of God is not our ingenuity. The greatest determining factor of our success in the mission of expanding the kingdom of God in the world is not our ability to strategize. It's not in our financial networking. It's not in our program selection. It's not even in the facilities and the buildings that we have. The single greatest determining factor in the lasting mission success of the church of Jesus Christ is our dependence, the church's dependence upon the provision and the power that comes from the good and gracious hand of God alone. If God will be glorified in our kingdom work, brothers and sisters, we must be dependent not upon charismatic preachers, not upon modern facilities, not upon the finances that we bring to the table. We must be dependent upon Christ, the risen Savior, who redeems repenting people for His glory and for the expansion of His kingdom in the world. We must depend upon God who created everything and who owns everything to provide us power by His Holy Spirit and provision by His good hand to do what He has called us to do. The truth of Nehemiah 1 and 2 is that God is glorified among those who repent of their sin, who find life in Jesus, His Son, and who depend upon His grace For all things. Friend, be it repentance of sin or a a, a renewed dependence upon Christ to provide all that you need, each of us needs to respond to God's word today. Repenting or depending or dear friend, both. How will you respond to God's word today? How will God be glorified in your repentance this Sunday? this week? How will God be glorified in your depending upon Him for all things in the days, weeks, months, years that you have left to live? I invite you to submit your life and faith to God's Word, to the hope of the Gospel that Jesus brings forgiveness to all who trust Him and to depend upon His power for expanding His kingdom into the hearts of those who love Him and trust Him all around the world. Will you pray with me?